Hello, my name is Eric Holmberg, Director of Real to Real Ministries. In this video, we're going to be examining an intriguing as well as controversial question. Just who is the beast of Revelation? According to the Apostle John's description in Revelation 13, 18, we know he's evil incarnate, depraved, reprobate, and a great persecutor of God's people. When we get beyond this basic description, however, well, things don't appear to be quite as obvious. Many Christian scholars, though by no means all, believe this beast to be the same figure as the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians and the Antichrist in 1 John. When you couple this with the Apostle's comments connecting the Antichrist spirit with the, quote, last time, end quote, and then consider the common belief among many of today's Christians that we are living in the very last days of this last time. Well, it's no wonder that tremendous speculation has arisen concerning the identity of the beast. We're in a time of the absolute end, and we must have His grace upon us. Can we say amen? Numerous candidates have been advanced throughout the years, among them Pope Leo, Napoleon, Lenin, Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Henry Kissinger, Mikhail Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan, and most recently, even Bill Gates. Theories and predictions about the beast go on and on. According to the November 1st of 1999 edition of Newsweek magazine, 19% of all Americans and nearly half of all evangelical Christians believe that the Antichrist is on the earth now. The popularity of speculation concerning the identity of the beast can be seen in the numerous books and videos on the subject, and the fact that tens of millions of copies have been sold. One title, Left Behind by Tim LaHaye, became the New York Times number one bestseller in 1999. Either directly or indirectly, the Beast of Revelation has become a central character in a number of today's films. Typically, he's depicted as a diabolical world dictator who will bring about some sort of new world order. Great speculation has also been paid to the infamous Mark of the Beast and its attendant power over the destinies of Earth's citizens. Credit cards, universal product codes, retinal scanners, and hand-implanted computer chips have all been trotted out as likely candidates for the dreaded mark. Meanwhile, evil men wax worse and worse. The beast hovers in the shadows in anticipation of his grand entrance, and the church stands poised for the rapture. Apocalyptic expectations, in short, are virtually everywhere. The book of Revelation describes the end of the physical world in a battle between heaven and hell, good against evil. The Millennium Group believed that that time was upon us. The Millennium is 14 hours away. Well, these people, even when they were alive, mangled biblical prophecy to the extent that it's unrecognizable. A year 2000 is just their artificial deadline. Personally, I can relate. When Christ brought me to himself in 1980, like everyone else I knew, eschatology, or the study of last things, was a real area of interest and fascination for me. After all, we were the generation that saw the return of Israel and the holy city Jerusalem to the control of God's chosen people. Surely the end of all things was at hand. 
I'll never forget the exact moment when God showed me that my late great Planet Earth theology was not the slam dunk I thought it was. Someone had handed me an audio cassette featuring a notable televangelist interviewing a man whose ministry played a part in my salvation. My respect for both men was enormous. As far as I was concerned as a new believer, they knew God and heard from Him in ways that were beyond my comprehension. If God had showed them something, well, that pretty much settled it as far as I was concerned. As I listened to the tape, my interest soared when they began discussing contemporary fulfillments of end-time prophecy. After much excited analysis, both men finally agreed that it was highly probable that the Lord would return for His church before year's end. I was stunned. I mean, I wanted the Lord to come back. I still do. But there were things in both my personal and ministry life I was looking forward to accomplishing. Now there wouldn't be time. I felt a little guilty for feeling that way and began the process of working through my emotions and trying to get my heart and my priorities right. And then the next day, I ejected the tape and happened to note that there was a broadcast date on the label. You guessed it. It was from the previous year. As I stared at the tape, I could sense the Lord cautioning me to not only be careful about setting dates, but also about letting end-time speculation cause me to lose sight of the Great Commission and the business of occupying, of doing the Lord's business until He returns. And then later, as I began to see just how often these so-called prophecy experts have been wrong in their predictions and analyses, well, I began to entertain the idea that maybe there was more to all this end-times prophecy stuff than I'd been led to believe. Then there was my own study of God's Word, secret raptures, multiple returns of the Lord, gaps in Daniel's 70 weeks, cobra helicopters in the book of Revelation. Many of the tenets of modern premillennialism became increasingly difficult for me to reconcile with my own study of the Bible and with what the church has historically believed about these matters. As just one example, I can specifically remember doing a study of John's Gospel about a year after becoming a Christian. I got to the passage in John 5 where Jesus spoke about the resurrection of the dead. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. My Bible had Daniel 12, too, as a cross-reference for this verse. And when I turned there, I found almost the exact same words, with the same indication of a simultaneous resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. How was I to reconcile this with my belief that the church would be raptured first, and then the rest of the world at some later point, possibly as much as 1,000 years later? And then there were verses like 2 Peter 3.10 that seemed to indicate that when Christ did return, human history as we know it would be over, that the earth would be transformed, that man's works would be judged, that time would be subsumed into eternity. That certainly didn't fit with what I and most evangelicals I knew believed about the end times. Imagine my further chagrin when I learned that the giants of the faith that I and most Christians looked up to, men like Augustine, Athanasius, Calvin, Luther, Knox, Edwards, Wesley, Whitfield, and Hodge also held to the belief that when Christ returned, the curtain would go down on human history. If they were right, then the prevailing eschatology of our modern era, one that I took to be almost as sacrosanct as the doctrine of the Trinity and justification by faith, didn't just have problems, it was a problem. The ground seemed to be shifting under my feet.
The final break from modern premillennial eschatology came for me, however, as I began to understand something of the magnitude of the work Christ accomplished through his death, resurrection, and his subsequent coronation in the throne room of heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the ruler, Revelation 1.5 says, of the kings of the earth. I saw this clearly in our Lord's last words to the church as he bodily left this planet. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I heard it resonate in Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, a prayer that God would open their eyes to see the magnitude of Christ's present reign and power. That the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. I began to have profound problems with the subtle and not so subtle defeatism inherent in today's popular eschatologies. For example, either Satan, in fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15, had his head crushed when Christ's heel was wounded at Calvary, or else Satan was alive and well on the planet Earth and getting ready to take over the planet through his servant the beast. I couldn't really see how both could be true. Let me try to illustrate this dichotomy. While the population of the world today is approximately six billion, there's a cosmic or federal sense in which there are only two people on this planet, the first Adam and his descendants, and the second or last Adam, Jesus, and his children. We are all born into the first Adam, inheriting from him not only our physical bodies, but also our bent towards selfishness and evil, what is commonly called original sin. Then through the new birth, we are born again into Christ. This duality runs throughout all of scripture. We have the sheep and the goats, the bride and the harlot, the vine of Christ and the vine of the earth, the children of light and the children of darkness, the wheat and the tares, the city of God and the city of man. The list goes on. But for the sake of this illustration, let's use the first description found in the Bible. That is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent spoken of by God in Genesis 3.15. The Lord said that there would always be enmity between these two seeds as each battles for dominion over the other. Now follow this analogy closely. For Christians, there is no real debate as to the essentials of the struggle. God and Satan are both present spiritually on this planet. It's critical to note, however, that only God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. In stark contrast, Satan and his demons are created and finite spiritual beings who operate only within the context of God's sovereign will, as seen in Job chapters 1 and 2. In other words, if it comes to a contest between God and Satan, well, there is no contest. The real battle rages between the two federal men, the seed of the serpent with Satan in his corner 
and the seed of the woman with Jehovah, the Lord of hosts and his. Each is energized spiritually by his respective master. Each has been given a game plan, a covenant, with corresponding blessings and curses that will determine their effectiveness in their battle for the planet. But keep in mind that it's the men, flesh and blood humans, who are the ultimate locus of this struggle. Even when the beast enters the ring, it's a man, Satan's man to be sure, but a man nonetheless. And whom does he fight against for the control of the planet? Born again, spirit-filled, mind-renewed, great commission, gospel-shod, word-equipped, demon-conquering sons and daughters, not to mention ambassadors, of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, I don't care how you try to get around it. The ultimate bottom line in today's most popular versions of premillennial eschatology is that, well, the seed of the serpent prevails. God has to yank us out of the ring and take on the serpent seed himself. Satan is able to do what God can't, get his boxer to win. Now, you might not have a problem with that, but let me tell you, I do. And so would the vast majority of the champions of the faith who've gone before us. In fact, let me be frank with you. The liberty and prosperity we enjoy today here in America wouldn't even exist if the men and women who settled, fought, and sacrificed for this country held to our modern beliefs concerning the outcome of this battle. That's a fact. And it was this and the other issues I've just discussed that finally convinced me that the eschatology I'd absorbed from the popular evangelical culture was wrong. Gradually, I found my way to the bold postmillennialism of Athanasius, Jonathan Edwards, and the man from whom you're about to hear. This struggle between good and evil and its ultimate outcome is what the book of Revelation and this video are all about. The beast of Revelation identified will focus on primarily one key aspect of this great drama, but in analyzing his possible identity, as well as his place in history and his ultimate outcome, we're going to be raising all kinds of related issues that have profound implications for the way we live our lives. You see, all ideas have consequences, but it can be argued that few ideas have greater consequence than those that inform our vision of the future. And let me also warn you, what you're about to see and hear may cause your mind to tilt, and perhaps even to ask, what strange new doctrine is this? Well, keep in mind that it's actually a very old doctrine or belief, one held in general, if not in all the specifics, by many of the greatest champions of the faith, both past and present. In fact, and I say this with all due respect to my many good Christian brothers and sisters who hold to it, that it's the popular dispensational form of premillennialism that is the real theological novelty. It was J.N. Darby who developed its key interpretive elements in the 1830s. William Miller and C.I. Schofield further refined and popularized the system over the next 100 years. Today, the best-selling books of Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye, among many others, have pushed this eschatological view to the forefront of our national consciousness. Even Hollywood has gotten into the act, as movies like The Omen, The Seventh Sign, and End of Days operate within the same apocalyptic context. Got it. Revelation, Revelation 5, a scroll. Can we read the sixth sign? 
And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became red as blood. With this level of popularity, we fully expect that the view this video presents, a view that stands outside this accepted and entrenched tradition, will be seen by many to be strange and even unbiblical. Let me now introduce you to our guide as we begin our journey, so to speak, into the belly of the beast. Dr. Gentry is a man of God and a godly man, the husband of one wife, a pastor, a respected Bible scholar, a champion of conservative and historically informed orthodoxy, and the author of numerous books and commentaries, with a particular expertise in the field of eschatology. It should also be noted that at one time, Dr. Gentry was an advocate for dispensational premillennialism, the very view he's about to challenge. What follows is a lecture he gave at the 1999 Ligonier Conference in Orlando, Florida. The lecture is an hour long and is filled with lessons from scripture, history, and theology that will require your thoughtful attentiveness. Feel free to stop the tape, rewind, review, look up the scriptures, whatever is necessary to understand the full force of his argument. And finally, the video closes as people from around the country ask the big questions that are commonly provoked by Dr. Gentry's position. What follows is strong meat, meat that might not only revolutionize your understanding of the end times, but even more importantly, it may just change and energize your entire Christian worldview as well.